My text this Lord's Day is from Micah chapter 5, verse 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. Self-confidence, self-esteem, and a good self-image are religious virtues in the eyes of the world. There is nothing higher to shoot for in the psychological realm of those who are without Christ than self-esteem. Feeling good about oneself in this secular religious system is the equivalent of heaven on earth to the non-Christian. In the religious seminaries of secular humanism, those institutions commonly called public schools, self-esteem is the primary doctrine being promoted in nearly every subject. This false doctrine teaches that the individual person is worthy and deserving of all honor, praise, and acceptation. The individual is taught to think well of himself regardless of his many faults, mistakes, or sins. He is taught to trust his own judgment implicitly. That no one has a right to make a judgment about his conduct, his speech, his belief system, his music, his art, his literature, his clothing, or even his hair. Churches today throughout the world, sadly to say, will hear sermons that are more intended to make a person feel good about himself and to keep him coming back and back to get another injection of this false gospel rather than to make a person see himself as a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, Such a theology is poison to the mind and soul of millions of children and adults. It will quicker turn a soul from trusting Christ than any doctrine. For it is not self-love that a man desperately needs. He is born with a hefty dose of self-love. But rather, what a man needs is love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not esteem for self that we should be heaping upon our own heads, but rather grief and sorrow for our many sins and shortcomings in the sight of God. The most foundational principle of a right understanding of knowledge is this. In other words, how do you know what you know? The most foundational principle to knowing what you should know is this. Don't trust yourself. Don't implicitly trust your own knowledge of truth. For your thinking and the thinking of every man has been perverted by sin. You see, Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In fact, Proverbs 28, 
Verse 26. Continues that same theme, but in very explicit terms. Proverbs 28:26. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. God leaves no room for us in this area. Dear ones, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord our God. If you would be truly wise, if you would truly know and understand the Word of God and the will of God, this is where, this is the A, B, C, if you will, of gaining that knowledge. To fear the Lord. For all of the knowledge and wisdom, as we read from Colossians 2 today in our Scripture reading, is in Jesus Christ. It is hidden in Him. And it will stay hidden in Him and we will not become partakers of it in the slightest if we trust ourselves. If we look to ourselves. But if we fear the Lord our God, if we reverence Him, if we trust Him and commit all our ways unto Him, we shall grow in what true knowledge is. This Lord's Day, we turn our attention to Micah chapter 5, verses 7 through 15 where we shall see that one of the Lord's promises to His people is that He will remove from them all those things in which they have put their trust, things in which they have put their confidence, so that they may with all their heart trust the Lord their God. There are four promises that the Lord makes to His small remnant in our text this Lord's Day. Four promises. The first one is that that He will cause His remnant to bring the blessings of heaven to the nations. Verse 7. The second promise is that the Lord will cause His remnant to be bold and courageous before the nations. Verses 8 and 9. Thirdly, God will cause His remnant to cast off all confidence in man's resources. Verses 10 through 14. And then lastly, the Lord will execute His vengeance on all nations that do not hear the truth proclaimed by His remnant. Verse 15. So let us turn our attention now to Micah chapter 5 and consider that first promise made to the remnant of Israel. First of all, He will cause... His remnant to bring the blessings of heaven to the nations. Verse 7 says this, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. Chapter 5 of Micah, you'll recall, began with the holy chastening that God was to bring upon His people, wherein they were to be besieged and led into captivity for their idolatry against God and for their oppression against the weak and the helpless within their midst. 
Then in verses 2 through 6, God promises to Israel an invincible king. Though their king would be led into captivity, God would provide them with a king who could not be conquered, but who would conquer all. A prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come. This king would be fully God and fully man and would bring forth victory to his people even unto the ends of the earth. And now in verses 7 through 15, the Lord, the Lord issues more promises to the faithful among his people so as to lift up their faith beyond his severe chastening which they were about to experience so that they would have hope of a promise to be able to put their faith in that promise which God would bring about in his due time. And so we look to those promises now. In verse 7, the Lord promises his people, or promises his people blessing. He calls his people in this particular regard the remnant of Jacob. In verse 7. He also refers to them by the same designation in verse 8. The remnant of Jacob. The promises here made in verses 7 through 15, dear ones, are not made to Israel as a whole, but they are made to the remnant of Israel. Now, a remnant is a smaller portion of the whole. Women will perhaps be very familiar with a remnant of carpet. That's a piece of carpet that is left over after carpeting the house. And you can go to a particular store and sometimes pick up a remnant. Or a remnant of fabric, the same kind of idea. A piece of the whole. Well, that's what we're looking at here in the remnant of Israel. is a part of the whole. Who is the remnant of Israel? Well, the remnant of Israel refers not to those who are simply of Israel as to the flesh, but rather those who are Israel as to the heart as well. Those who are Israel indeed. You remember when Jesus saw Nathanael, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed. Here is a true Israelite. One who is not only an Israelite according to the flesh, but one whose heart is right with the Lord. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 9.6 that, that all are not Israel who are of Israel. That is, not all are true Israel who come from Israel. This remnant of Jacob or Israel, they are those who are not only circumcised in the flesh, but those who are circumcised in the heart. Not only have received the outward ordinances according to the visible church, the external church, but also have a spiritual cutting away of the flesh in their heart and their soul. They've been given a new nature. The Lord has caused them to become born again. They are, according to Paul in Romans 11.5, a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant according to the election of grace. 
In that passage, Paul is giving an explanation why the, the majority, the greater number of Israel have been blinded, have been calloused. Their hearts have been turned from the Lord. They rejected the Savior. And the question comes, has God forgotten Israel? Is He no longer going to fulfill His promises that He made to Israel? And the Lord says, yes, presently He's fulfilling His promises to Israel through this election according to grace. This remnant of Israel, this part of Israel who know the Lord. The fulfillment of these promises made to the remnant of Jacob seem to look forward to the time of Christ and thereafter until the time that all Israel is saved. In Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We're in chapter 5 of Micah and we have seen how the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come to rule over His people. And from that point on in chapter 5, what we have been considering is how the Lord would... Uh, would conquer and bring about victory on behalf of His people. And so we are looking at this period that we would call the Messianic period, the period between the first and the second coming of Christ. This remnant of Israel is a part of the church of Jesus Christ. They have been brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the promises made to the remnant of Israel as to the spiritual promises made to the remnant of Israel also apply to the faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to this small remnant that the Lord addresses these words of hope and encouragement for the Lord, dear ones, delights to take that which is small, that which is seemingly insignificant, that which is despised by the world, that which is without the human resources and strength that the nations of the world have and many churches of the world have. And He, he delights to take that small remnant and by His grace, he delights to make that small remnant overcome all their greater and mightier enemies. Just think back into biblical history. How the Lord delighted to take a Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and to save him and his family, though the rest of the world was condemned. <clears throat> or think in terms of how the Lord delighted to take a, a youth like David, and to bring him against a mighty foe like Goliath. And so as to show the power of the Lord to overcome the vast resources of the enemy. Or how even the Lord caused Jonathan to say concerning the victory that the Lord would bring over the Philistines, though there was only Jonathan and his armor bearer, and there were many of the Philistines up on the hill, Jonathan 
says this. First Samuel fourteen six. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Note. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. God is not restrained, dear ones, whether we be few or many, to bring about all of His intentions. In fact, as we see in the Scripture, He delights to use the remnant, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of a church, to see that the glorious gospel and the truth of God goes forward. Let us never forget, dear ones, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4. When we think about the, the times in which we live, when we think about how small we are, that this was the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And in verse 10, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Who hath despised the day of small things? God certainly hasn't because He's used a lot of small things throughout biblical history and even history outside of the Scriptures to promote His glory. God doesn't despise the day of small things. Let us not despise them. This remnant of Israel, dear ones, is first promised that even though they are very small, even though they are scattered among many nations, and even though they are surrounded by those stronger than themselves, Yet they are not to fear their enemies, for God would use them, that small little remnant. God would use them to bring His heavenly kingdom upon the nations so that they would be like a life-giving dew that falls from heaven upon the grass of the field. God would use a small little remnant. Certainly, He's accomplished that, hasn't He? With that small little remnant of disciples, the remnant of Israel, those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, the days of the, of the apostles, the truth went forward. And the Gentile nations were brought into the kingdom. We who are Gentiles today are here because God has honored His Word and has blessed and conquered his enemies through even that small little remnant of Israel. Jesus called them during His ministry. He called them a little flock. Not a huge flock, but a little flock. And now, look to where the Gospel has gone. How many people through 1,900 years, who are Gentiles, have been brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, again, let us 
take heart that if God is able to use the remnant of Israel in that way, He's able to use any faithful remnant of His people to further His cause, to glorify Him in all ways. The prophecy here, or the promise made to the remnant of Israel in Micah 5.7 points to the blessing that they would be to the nation. Certainly we see again many examples in the Scriptures of a small remnant that was a blessing to a heathen nation. Think of Joseph and the blessing he was to Egypt. Think of Daniel and the blessing that he became in Babylon and Persia and how Esther and Mordecai became such a blessing in Persia as well. And as we have noted in a previous sermon, Christ reigns among His enemies. During this period of time, Christ is reigning. He is reigning in the midst of His enemies, even as we sung of in Psalm 110 today. He reigns amongst His enemies. Before moving on, I would simply give you an application for your own lives, and that is to view yourself just as the remnant was to be scattered amongst the nations and they were to become a blessing to the nations to where they were scattered. So the Lord has scattered you. He has scattered you in various places of employment. He has scattered you in, in various neighborhoods. He has scattered you in and amongst extended family members, all of whom may not know the Lord. And yet God has scattered you there. God has placed you there. He has placed you there, dear ones, to be a blessing to the nations, to be a blessing to the people with whom you work, extended family members, neighbors, we, can, we can't be the blessing that God has called us to be if we do not live according to His Word before our neighbors. If our neighbors hear us in our family shouting and screaming, if our work co-workers hear us using profanity, if our family members uh, receive the brunt of our anger and our bitterness and our resentment. We cannot be the salt and the light that Christ has called the church to be. You have to come into contact. The salt has to come into contact with the meat to be able to preserve the meat. We cannot be isolationists we cannot withdraw from the world. We're not to be worldly. We're not to take upon ourselves the affections and the lifestyle of the world. But we cannot withdraw from the world. 
We've been scattered. The Scripture says in 1 Peter 1, 1 that we're aliens. And we must never forget, yes, we are aliens. We can never feel so comfortable in this life that to, to lose our life would be to us everything. We're aliens here. We're foreigners. Christ, heaven, is where our citizenship is. We must never forget that. But we have been sent into this world and scattered amongst the nations to herald forth as ambassadors. All people in a general sense and ministers in a very particular sense to herald forth what our King has given us to, that there is peace and reconciliation offered to all who will come to Christ and lay down their arms and unconditionally surrender. There is peace for the King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord says in Micah 5, 7, that this blessing would be as dew from the heaven as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man nor waited for the sons of men. This simply indicates the power of God's grace rather than man's ability. Wherein it says that this heavenly dew that would fall upon the Gentile nations would not depend upon man but would fall freely from heaven above, that would fall freely from Jehovah, our God. It does not depend upon us ultimately. We have a duty and a responsibility, but it must be God who works within us, both to will and to do His good pleasure. It is His, it is His strength, it is His grace that accomplishes this, and not our own. And so, little flock, do not fear when you are cast among the enemy, an enemy that is greater and mightier than you, for the Lord will use you to bring His salvation to those who even appear to be hostile enemies. Didn't the Lord draw you, you who were once a hostile enemy unto Himself? Did He not work that work of grace in your heart to take one who was a foe and to make him one who was a friend. He will do the same through you if you simply will be used, if you will open your hearts, if you will seek the Lord, ask Him how you can be used. Call upon Him with regard to ministry. Wherever the Lord has scattered you, call upon Him to help you to be a remnant of the Lord our God that pours forth the dew of heaven, the blessings of heaven upon the nations. Secondly, the second promise is this. God will cause His remnant to be bold and courageous before the nations. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, it says, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, 
and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Just as a lion is not afraid of sheep, but rather boldly goes in amongst the sheep to devour its prey, so the Lord here likens the remnant of Israel to lions who would be given God's courage to devour their enemies with the gospel of salvation, with the truth, to do battle with the Word of God, and even to cause those enemies to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 65, verse 25, it talks about in this millennial period, it talks about uh, the wolf and the lamb lying down together. It talks about that, those that were uh, enemies at one time being able to, uh, to be at peace, to be reconciled with one another, to dwell safely with. You see, this is what happens at a spiritual level every time someone is converted before they were a wolf and they become a lamb. And this is what the Lord has called us to do. We need not be afraid, the Lord says, for this is the courage that He will give. It is not our own courage. It is not our own strength. It is not something that we inherently have. It is something that is given to us by the Lord our God. I would have you note how this was indeed again fulfilled in the life of the apostles, who at one point prior to Christ's death, fled in every which direction you can imagine out of fear. And even Peter himself denying three times that he knew the Lord, succumbing entirely to fear, being overwhelmed by fear. But then after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit with power into their lives, we see how the Lord caused them to be courageous, completely changed men, altogether different with the way that they were now viewing their mission. Before they were uh, hiding and running, and now they're going forth to proclaim the truth. In fact, they were so courageous as they stood before the leaders of the nation the leaders were confounded. They wondered, where did this courage come from? Where did this wisdom come from with which they, they spoke? And they reasoned, this is the kind of courage and wisdom that the Lord Jesus had. That's what the leaders were even thinking in their own mind. These men are acting like Christ. This characterized their life. Dear ones, that's not an apostolic gift. Courage is not something given to only the apostles. Courage is something that God, through Jesus Christ, when Christ died on the cross, He died and He purchased for each of His children courage. He purchased every gift and grace that his children would need to live the Christian life. He purchased it with his own blood. 
He rose again to show that He had accomplished it and purchased it. It is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in the bank account. Are you drawing upon what's in the bank account? Are you believing that the Lord can give you courage for every single circumstance and situation that you face? You see, it's like what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. As, as Moses said, this commandment is not up in the heavens so that it, you have to go up to heaven to get it. It's not across the sea so that you have to run across the sea, swim all that way to, to get this, this word of the Lord, this commandment. And likewise, courage is not something that is sealed in heaven. It's not across the sea. It is as nigh unto you as your own words, your own breath. It's there for you to have, to believe and to take this courage that God promises here in Micah 5, verses 8 and 9. This courage that is spoken of here that God will grant to His remnant to the remnant of Israel and to his remnant of people, those who are his people throughout the world are part of his church. It is described for us in Matthew 10.28 where the Lord is speaking, in fact, of persecution through which the apostles would go. And he says to them, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, courage is simply fearing God more than you fear any man. Trusting God more than you trust any man. Loving God more than you love any man. That's where courage comes from. It was said of, of John Knox <clears throat> by the Queen Regent in Scotland that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she feared an army of 10,000 men. Here was a man who had obtained courage. Here was a man who had trusted the Lord and who, through hours and hours of prayer, spending time before God, because no one can be courageous before man if they do not spend much time before God in prayer. There simply is no relationship to forsaking our time with God in prayer and experiencing courage. There is a disconnect. But we will find to the contrary when we do spend time with the Lord our God, when we do pour out our hearts to Him, when we take hold of the grace which Christ has promised to us, we'll see that God will indeed grant us the courage for which we have prayed. If we can pray, dear ones, according to James 1.5, 
if we lack wisdom, if we can pray and ask the Lord for wisdom, can't we ask for every grace which Christ has purchased? Can't we simply request in faith, Lord, supply me with this grace which Christ has purchased for me. Cause me to be a courageous Christian. The Lord here promises to make His faithful remnant as bold as a lion. I would ask you, dear ones, what are your fears in life? What fears do you face in life? Persecution for the truth? Rejection by others? Ridicule? Mocking? Do you fear looking like a fool before others for the testimony of Christ? Do you fear the loss of loved ones? Do you fear falling into poverty, losing your home, your car, losing what wealth you have? Do you fear being alone? Do you fear that besetting sin that's in your life that you have many times sought to overcome? Do you fear that you may in some time in the future when put to the test renounce the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you fear your own death? Do you see there are many, many things that we can fear? Not simply testifying before our neighbors or testifying before others. We can certainly fear that. But there are many fears that run throughout our life that we must face with the boldness of a lion, the same courage which God gives to us, the same courage which the Lord Jesus Christ purchased for us. We are to use facing every fear and every worry and every anxiety in our lives. Courage will never come, dear ones, by you running away from your fears. For they will always meet you again when you're all by yourself, when you're alone, when you lay your head down upon the bed. You may try to fill your life with busyness, with work, with pleasure. You may try to bury it in various ways, but fear will seem to raise its ugly head unless it is dealt with unless you face it head on and you acknowledge, I have no need to fear that. My God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ has already conquered all of His enemies. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. See, that is one of the the snares that the devil throws into our path more often than not, fears, worries. If we can be as bold as a lion here, as the Lord promises, He will give to His people that courage and boldness. If we can, if we can take hold of that promise, we will certainly drive the enemy far from us. The third promise that's made 
to the remnant of Israel is this. God will cause his remnant to cast off all confidence in man's resources, in man's strength, in man's inventions. Verses 10 through 14, Micah chapter 5. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so will I destroy thy cities. See, the Lord not only promises that he will overcome the cowardice the natural inclination of men to be a coward, he would not only overcome that by giving to them courage, but he will also destroy their confidence in men and give them an unfailing confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the sins, dear ones, all of the sins of man flow from a common source. A confidence in the creature rather than a confidence in the Creator. From the very first sin of man to the very last sin of man, you can track it down to the fact that man has placed their trust, their confidence, their joy, their pleasure, their love in the creature rather than in the Creator. This is simply to say that all of our sins originate from our failure to keep the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It results from our failure to keep the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Think in terms of a few sins. From where does unbelief arise? Well, it arises from our believing man or believing what we see more than we believe the Lord our God. Placing trust in the creature rather than in the Creator. From where does the love of the world come? Where does our infatuation with the pleasures of this life, from where does it come? From our looking for happiness and joy in the things of this life, primarily, rather than finding our joy primarily in Christ. From where does our pride come? Our arrogance. Our thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Taking credit looking for the pat on the back. From where does all of that come? It comes from believing that our gifts and abilities, our knowledge, our appearance, our wealth, 
come from our own works rather than from the gift given to us by God. We have, again, placed our love and our trust in the wrong place. From where does our bitterness and our resentment come? When we are bitter and uh, resentful, we refuse to forgive others who have sinned against us. Even when the, uh, the others have come and, and sought forgiveness and we refuse, we, we harbor it in our lives. We allow it to continue. From whence does that arise? From trusting in our own rights. Thinking we have the right to cling to that. We have been so unfairly treated. We have been so uh, maligned. that we have the right to continue to hold on to our anger and our bitterness and resentment. It's our right. And the Lord says, no, it's not your right. You're to forgive as I have forgiven you. If I clung to my rights, God could say, you would all be in hell. You see, the whole work of salvation and sanctification is the power and grace of God in action when He turns us from trusting and loving the creature more than we trust and love the Lord. Turning us to the Savior. And notice, dear ones, in Micah chapter 5, in verses 10 through 14, notice the specific things in which Israel trusted. In verse 10, the Lord says that he would take away her horses and chariots. That is, she was trusting in physical strength and military might to save and to deliver her. The Lord says in verse 11 that he will take away fortified cities. That is, the Lord would take away earthly security and comfort so that they would learn that their security and comfort, that their joy, their contentment and peace is in the Lord. Let me stop there for a moment and simply note that all these things that the Lord said He would take away from Israel, horses and chariots, fortified cities, these are not sinful in and of themselves. But dear ones, how often we take that which was intended for our good and our blessing and we make it an idol in our lives by trusting it more than we trust the Lord, by, by loving it more than we love the Lord, by finding our pleasure more in it than we find in the Lord. And it becomes an idol to us. And you know what? The Lord says that He will take those things away from us. He will take those things away from us. And when He does take those things in which we are trusting, those things in which we love more than we love the Lord, when He takes those things from us, it is not because He despises and hates us. But it is because He would wean us from our idolatry, that He would destroy the idols so that we would turn to Him 
and trust completely in him and love him with all our heart. He promises that he will take from the remnant of Israel here all of their idols that they trusted in, their security blankets. He would take them away so that they would be in a position where they would have to trust the Lord. Isn't that the time when we are most likely going to reach out to the Lord, when God takes out from us all of our security, that which we trusted in before? Then we see that God alone is our confidence. Now we come to the conspicuous gods that were to be removed in the, the life of Israel in the next three verses. He speaks of diviners uh, who divine the future in verse 12, that these would be destroyed and removed. That is, the various forms of the occult would be taken from them. He speaks concerning in verses 13 and 14, as well, that he will remove from them all of their idolatry. Or, let me simply say it this way, he will remove from them all of their will worship. They're worshiping God according to their own standards, according to their own imaginations, according to their own will. He will take all of those, those inventions of men that they have used as an aid to worship Him and He'll destroy them and say, I've not authorized that. I've not commanded that. You're to worship Me in spirit and in truth. You're to come to Me with a whole heart, a heart full of faith and love. And you're to bring the sacrifices of, of worship and praise which I have ordained. And nothing more, nothing less. Naaman, the leper, who was a great Syrian commander in the Old Testament, you'll remember, he trusted in his own wisdom. And as a result of that, he was not healed until he trusted in the word of the Lord and, and said, I will trust in what the word of the Lord has given to me and I will be cleansed in the River Jordan. But as long as he trusted in his own thoughts, in his own ways, in his own knowledge, he was not healed. King Uzziah, you remember, trusted in his own royal authority and offered the incense on the altar, which was only to be offered by the priests, and he was smitten with leprosy. Solomon trusted in his wealth and in his pleasure, and he was led into rebellion and unfaithfulness of every kind. Peter trusted in his own faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Lord, I'll never deny you. That could never happen to me. And he who was brought to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, God is in the process of destroying all the creatures in which we trust and turning us from the creature to find our hope and trust in Christ alone. He's accomplishing that. That's in, a, in essence, 
In summary form, that is what sanctification is. He's turning us from trusting in all these other things to trust in Him alone. And you see how the Lord rewards this faith when we turn to Christ away from those things in which we have trusted. The woman with an issue of blood had been sick many years, had gone and spent her wealth upon doctors. She had nowhere else to turn. She simply took a hold of the hem of Christ's garment, put her faith and trust in Christ and was healed. Zacchaeus turned from trusting his wealth. And you know what? He found greater riches in Jesus Christ to his satisfaction. We're commanded, dear ones, to turn from trusting loving more than we love and trust God. We're, turned, we're, we're commanded to turn from even mother and father, brother and sister, husband or wife. We're not to love or trust any person more than we love and trust the Lord our God. You're not to trust the Puritan Reformed Church more than you trust Christ. You're not to trust me as a pastor or our elders or our terms of communion or our, uh, the Solemn League and Covenant more than you trust Christ. You're not to trust anything that is written by man more than you trust Christ. When it is agreeable to the Word of God, when it is agreeable to the Word of Christ, then you can embrace it and take it as being from the Lord. I've known husbands and wives who have entered into all kinds of difficulties because the husband or the wife depended upon and expected that the other spouse would be the one who would make them happy in this life. They depended upon that person to make them happy. And when that person didn't fulfill all their expectations, they were no longer happy. They're very sad or they're very angry or they want it out of the marriage. Dear ones, let us come to realize no one in this life can we depend upon to make us happy. Nothing in this life can we depend upon to make us happy. Joy and happiness are only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He blesses us with everything else by way of a good gift, then we can truly enjoy them. And finally, the last promise, very briefly, is this. God will execute His vengeance on all nations that do not hear the truth proclaimed by His remnant people. Verse 15. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. Those who will not hear and hearken. Those who will not embrace the message of salvation that is brought to them by the faithful remnant. And as the truth of God goes forth throughout the world, those who reject and turn their backs upon it, the Lord says 
that he will repay them to their face. He will bring his wrath and his vengeance upon them and will destroy them and smite them. You see, the Lord has a double-edged sword with the Word of God when it comes to his enemies. With some, that sword brings them into the kingdom and they submit. With others, it sends them fleeing, rebelling against the Lord. Those are the ones whom the Lord says here will receive his vengeance. We must remember, dear ones, that when it seems as though God is overly patient with flagrant scorn of the gospel and of the truth, and when it seems as if habitual violations of His commandments occur all around us, that He is leaving the wicked no excuse for their unbelief and disobedience by being patient with them. He is continuing to invite them to come unto Him, to offer to them His salvation, so as to leave them no excuse when judgment day falls. We must remember, dear ones, in this whole cause of the kingdom, it is not our cause. It is not our cause. The kingdom will go forward with us or without us. None of us can look upon ourselves as not being expendable. Any of us are expendable within the kingdom of the Lord. None of us are so important to the kingdom of Christ that the kingdom of Christ would crumble if one was to die. This is Christ's cause. The gates of hell will not prevail against this remnant. And therefore, dear ones, let us be a lamb in our own cause. When we are assailed personally, when we are reviled personally, let us be a lamb in our own cause. But let us be a lion in the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. I simply close by noting at this time that the ultimate and fatal sin in self-trust, in self-confidence, and in self-love is to trust in your own works of righteousness rather than taking hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, it is indeed a doctrine which damns people to hell to think that we can offer to God anything on the basis of our own merit, on the basis of our own righteousness, and that God will receive it. That is where this sin in even the lives of Christians, where we trust things, this is where this sin ultimately displays itself that we, if we are totally consistent with that sin, we believe that we can save ourselves. That we don't need a Savior. That is a damnable doctrine. And because 
that is so serious of a sin, dear ones. Let us flee from any kind of, of sin that would resemble that, whereby we are trusting in things rather than in the Lord. Let Christ alone be your confidence and your trust. Please stand with me at this time in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank Thee for Thy Word this day. For Thou hast challenged us. Thou hast, O Lord, removed us from places of security and comfort to see that, O Lord, Thou alone art our security, our peace, our contentment and joy. We pray, Father, that Thou would cause this truth to be indelibly branded into our minds. That, Lord, day in and day out, we would be searching our souls, repenting, O God, for ways in which we have trusted the creature rather than the Savior. Ways in which we have loved the things of this world more than we have loved Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that Thou would, would bless Thy people. Cause, Lord, us to be a faithful remnant. A people, Lord, small, but yet, oh, Father, one. A people that are committed to Christ above all things. A people who are committed to testifying of the grace and mercy of Christ testifying, O Lord, of the holiness of Christ. We pray, Lord, that Thou would cause Thy promises to be realized even through this remnant of Thy people, that, the, that where we are planted, where we are scattered, O Lord, that Thou would cause us to be a blessing to the nations, to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.